Life is important, would you agree? I don't think it matters which side of anything that you stand on collectively as human beings, we would agree that life is important. And so at Crossbridge, we, we talk about everything and anything, and I thank you for the privilege to do that. But as we enter in today, we remember as life is important, this means every single life, a kid's life, a teacher's life, a man's life, a woman's life, a black life, a white life, a, you know, a brown life, uh, a, a police life, a veteran's life, every life that we can categorize as important to God. And therefore, we should be fighting constantly to preserve life as everyone's creating the image of God, which really leads us today into the conversation on unborn lives. How do we handle this and what do we do? So uh, I am grateful that I don't have to do this alone. So um, thank you for su getting suckered into, uh, agreeing to this. Um, uh, Pastor Will and Becky, as we were talking about it, and I need to tell you that the beautifulness of our staff and our church is that there's a lot of trust between this team here and, and all the people that sit at our staff table. There's a lot of trust. And Will had come to me saying, hey, you talk about immigration and refugees, you talk about, you know, anti-violence, you talk about this, like, are we going to talk about, you know, this conversation? It was like, you're absolutely right, let's do it. It's like, what? Yes, yeah, sit at the table. Okay. It was exciting, so you said yes. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, snap, what do we do? No, yeah, yeah. Um, and I know, and I'll tell you this between the three of us, that uh, I, I know that each of you has had the privilege and the honor to, to, to preach here, but at the same time, I felt like preparing for this was preparing, uh, we put more time into this than we did anything that we've ever done. At least I felt like that. I was studying more stuff that I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, so it was a lot. But um, just for those who are maybe joining us online or here that don't know you, just maybe some quick intros so they know who you are. Hello, I'm Pastor Will. I've been here for about six years now. Um, my wife, Sharon, also works on staff, and I just became a new dad in the past three months, so that's exciting. Um, so that's exciting, and he's here today out, out of the stroller. Hi, Judah. Um, can't talk. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, I've been here about six years, and um, it's been exciting being at Crossbridge, and um, this conversation we've had before, it's not new to the staff table, but um, there brings a little bit more passion lately, especially having a son. Um, but this is a conversation, even a topic that is, is close to my heart. I think uh, of family members and friends who've gone through this um, or who are wrestling even currently now through this. Mm -hmm. That I think it's an important conversation to have and the church should be the forefront of that. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. And thanks for your voice in saying we should do this. I'm Becky Fry. Um, I've been part of Crossbridge for 16 years. I have been on staff for 12. Um, my current role is administrative director, trying to keep these two guys in line That's with what we're doing. That's why she's in the middle. Um, hopefully we'll stay on time for you today. Um, I do have four kids, um, ages eight to 16, um, with my husband, Joe, and I'm just glad to be part of this conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm grateful you're here. You've brought a lot of wisdom to this, and, and Crossbridge, I do wanna thank you. 
Um, I want you to know that we love you. We understand as we dive in, this is personal. We know that, that every one of us has a story connected to this. And my fear is that for some, you're ready to point out when we say something you like, you're going to be ready to amen it. When we say something you don't like, you've got your rebuttals ready to put us in our places going, yeah, but what about? And I need to tell you, there's no way to answer every question that you put in. So I'm preemptively disappointing you, OK? Uh, just, just so you know that, there, um, this, we received, I think it was like 58 questions total, um, and then some just statements. So that doesn't include just statements, which were interesting. Uh, so um, there's no way for us to get through this. We tried to lump them together into different categories so we could try to generalize some of the questions or the heart behinds the questions. We also removed uh, anything that might have seemed like personal information from a question so that there, no one would be like, oh, I know who asked that one. Um, we didn't want that. And so we boiled it down to about 10 to 12 that we're going to try to get through what we can and understanding that this is going to be hard. And we may not get through it all. But I want to start by just reading two passages uh, that are familiar to us as a church. First is out of James chapter 1. It says this, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. Understand this, my brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And the words of Jesus to his disciples in John chapter 13 tell us, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Today we are not aiming to fight. We're not aiming to pick fights or to frustrate. We're aiming to love each other, to be quick to listen, and to hear well. As we've done this, we ask the same grace from you. And so, Will, Becky, you ready? Yep. All right, let's do this. Um, this conversation was really brought on because the Supreme Court draft came out. And it was in regards to Roe versus Wade. And, and it's actually a much deeper than that as we've read through parts of that uh, draft and whatnot. So Becky, can you kind of catch us up? Because uh, I'm assuming that not everybody's read that or knows all about, that's about it. So can you give us a quick summary of what is it that this is all about with the draft? Sure. So we're going to start first. Let's define what, what happened with Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade was a 1973 Supreme Court ruling that stated that a woman's right to an abortion within the first trimester of pregnancy was protected by her right to privacy under the 14th Amendment. It also stated that the state could impose regulations during the second trimester related to maternal health and that they could fully or partially restrict abortions within the third trimester once fetal viability was reached, as long as there were exceptions for saving the life of the mother um, or her health. So to sum up, it made abortion legal within the first trimester in every state, because prior to Roe versus Wade, it was decided on a state-by-state -state basis. Then there was another Supreme Court decision in 1992 Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which actually originated out of Southeast Philly, and it affirmed the federal legalization of abortion, but it removed the trimester framework that Roe versus Wade had put in place, and it allowed states to regulate abortion at any time if it does not put an undue burden on the woman seeking an abortion. 
Okay, so that, that summed up is uh, Roe versus Wade set it up trimesters, but then the Casey case, which if you read the draft, it's often referred to as um, you know Roe and Casey. That's the terminology in the draft. So if you see that name, you know what it is. Casey was to remove that and then introduce the undue burden phrasing into the policy. Yes, which was also never defined. So that was kind of left ambiguous. Okay, so we got a gray area. Now, if this goes through, what happens? So if Roe versus Wade is overturned, um, which is what it looks like with the draft, it would mean that the decision on, um, would, on whether abortion is legal basically goes back to the states and that each state then gets to decide its own abortion rules. So as of um, this month, May 2022, there are 44 states that have laws that currently regulate abortion at certain stages of pregnancy, with 20 of the 44 having restrictions after fetal viability. The six states in gray that you see, um, and that includes New Jersey and also um, the Washington DC, have no laws restricting abortion. And that means that if the draft in Roe versus Wade was overturned, nothing would really change for us here in New Jersey. Um, there would be no change to the current abortion options offered. So I think one of the things we have to define though is abortion, right? We have to all agree that we're on the same terms in this conversation. So uh, we have to decide, I know we talk about it as pro-life or pro-choice, and we're gonna kind of talk about those two things, those two phrasings, but um, we all kind of in the room know what we're talking about. We're talking about abortion. So when it comes to abortion, we have to understand what it's defined, and today in this conversation, we're talking about, when we say the word abortion, we're saying the act of choosing to end a life, right? When some people say it, they're referring to someone who's deciding to maybe end a life, but when you say abortion, we're saying it's choosing to eliminate or terminate a pregnancy. But we're not referring to ectopic pregnancies or miscarriages. So we're not lumping those two things, miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies, into this. When we're talking about abortion, we're talking, and this is the definary def dictionary definition, the determination of a human pregnancy, right? That's the dictionary definition of it. Yeah. The deliberate termination, yeah. Um, so to your questions, you had 58 of them or so, and so the, the first, well, it was, really wasn't a question, it was a statement that we read. It was the first thing that came out was, please help me understand the abortion debate from a purely biblical lens. And I was like, oh, this is great. I love this statement. Um, it's not asking me what to do, it's telling me. I like direction. Um, <laughs> you know? Uh, <laughs> Becky's shaking her head. I'm sure Eileen is too, he hates that. Listen, this is uh, similar to what we talked about last week. We are aiming here as a community to have a Christian worldview, a Jesus worldview, the lens that we looked at. And, and this is really saying that. Can you help me have a debate from just a biblical lens? And I will tell you, it's hard when it's number one political because politics is going to change. But when it comes scriptural, I would say for me that this has to start where, first off, scripture is authoritative. Like, I believe that what I hold in my hand is the authoritative true word of God, that, that this is inerrant, that it, you know, that there, there's no like, oh, well, there's massive mistakes and we're figuring, like, no, if, if scripture says it, then I have to obey it, whether I like it, I don't like it, it it's just here. And so for me, it has to start there. Then I go, I would say, I start in Genesis chapter one, 
and I always go back to one and two to start a, a biblical worldview. And so I go back to Genesis 1, uh, 27, where I read in this conversation, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so I start by saying every single person is an image bearer of God, that there's something in us that, that shows who God is. But not just that, when you continue to go through Genesis, it hits Genesis chapter 5. And I love that the same terminology is used with Adam. And it says, when Adam was 130 years old, he became the father of a son who was just like him. In his very image, he named his son Seth. That there is something in the beauty of making humans <laughs> that God's given to us this great joy, and then you look at your son and say, he's just like me in my image, like God does with us. So I, I have to start in that place that every person that has been created, and we can get into the science of it later, but every person is an image bearer of God and therefore deserves purpose, value. And so when we enter into this conversation, help me understand it from a biblical lens or a, you know, a scriptural lens, I think you gotta remember um, Romans 3.23 that, that everyone has sinned and we all fall short of the God's glorious standard and that we all start at the same place as sinners. And so as we continue through this, like anytime we say, give me a biblical argument for it, I think we're looking to fight instead of looking to say, wait a second, how can I love like Christ has loved? How can I constantly go back to what scripture says as my foundation, extend the gift of grace that I've received and, and try to be careful because what's behind that give me a biblical you know, argument is we're looking for talking points to defend our positions sometimes. I think instead of continuing to constantly develop a worldview. And so when it comes to politics and policies, those are gonna be shifting always. But a great question when approaching any of these types of conversations, and there's a hundred of them out there, is, is how do I think Christianly about this? How do I think like Christ would think about this? And the truth is I don't think there's any real easy answers all the time, but that leads to uh, what I think is, you know, Will, uh, uh, one of our second really big questions. Yeah, so the question that came in says this. It seems to me that a lot of the debate centers less around protecting the unborn and more about forcing women to give birth without giving them or their children support and love in the future. How would Jesus handle this? And this is something that comes up a lot, I think, on this topic and issue, and I think it's a good question. Uh, the question of being, how would Jesus handle this? Right? So Jesus in John 10.10 10 says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus also talks about in Matthew 25 how we're to give to those who hunger, give to those who thirst, give to those who need clothes, visit those in prison. And if we're doing those things, it's like we're doing it unto him. So Jesus cares about the whole life of everyone. He came so that we would have life, but also that we'd have abundant and full life. So this starts in the womb, but doesn't end in the womb. Yeah. This is why he says, care for orphans, care for widows, to love our enemies, to tend to those who are in need. We're not just calling for the protection of the unborn, but we're calling for the care of mothers, fathers, widows, orphans, and the unborn. Yeah. It's not one or the other, but the totality of life, right? The whole gamut of life from, from womb to tomb. This isn't really a debate about forcing mothers about giving them care or support, but focusing currently at the issue that we're talking about, the issue at hand. So we're not saying, let's not care about the mothers, let's not care about fathers, we're just saying, let's focus on the conversation we're having. Jesus has called us as followers to care about life. But what about terrible foster care or gun control and climate change or the death penalty? If we're talking about life, we've got to talk about all these things. And yes, we should 
Right? We should care and have an opinion about all of these things. But that does not justify abortion. You can't say, oh, well, you know, the foster care system is bad, so then we can justify abortion. It doesn't work that way. We can talk about those things, but we have to focus on the issue that we're currently talking about. Like, think of it this way. The American Diabetes Association focuses on what? Diabetes, right? We, we kind of know that. It's kind of obvious it's in the name. <laughs> do we fault them, though, if they don't do more cancer research? Well, no, that's not, their, that's not their focus, that's not their specialty, of course not, because when they're focused on the issue at hand, they actually can get more accomplished. Um, does that mean that the American Diabetes Association and Americans don't care about cancer? Obviously not, cancer is a really bad thing and we're trying to figure that out. But that's not the issue we're talking about. So when we're talking about the unborn, it's not forgetting mothers or children after they're born, but it's the issue we're talking about currently. But we also have to make sure we're focused on some truths. So here's some, some stats I have for you. Uh, there are 600 Planned Parenthoods active in the US today, and you can look right on their website for that. But there's also over 2,000 advocacy centers in the US, right? So there's 600 Planned Parenthoods and over probably more like 2,400 advocacy centers in the US. Uh, Tell me an advocacy center, like what, what do you mean? So advocacy centers, if anyone is pregnant or having any, any issues, they can go to this, this center, right, and they will help with care. They'll teach you kind of, they'll give you the resources you need to be able to have a child, but also, even if you went through with an abortion, out of these 2,000, the majority helps with post-abortive care, meaning if you went through with an abortion or your spouse or a partner went through an abortion, they will actually counsel you and help you kind of put the pieces together that you're, that you're wrestling with from this trauma afterwards. So they're here for the whole life. They're taking care of everything. Mm. Um, and most of these centers are actually funded by the local church, if not all of them. Yeah. So the church has kind of been given money to these centers, and they take care of post-abortive care. So it's not a debate that we don't care about mothers or children after they're born. That, that's just not true. We're just currently talking about this topic. And if you want to talk about foster care, gun control, we can have those discussions, but that's not what we're currently talking about. And actually, we are looking and providing for mothers and children in many different ways. Mm -hmm. So, but I know, you know, I'm a man kind of coming in with this opinion, and a lot of people say, like, well, should men have an opinion? And I'm going to twist this a little bit and ask Becky, this is one of the questions we got, how do you respond to people who say the phrase, you're a man, you don't have a say in this? Well, I want to start my response with a quote that I found when doing some research. It's by Amelia Bono, who is the co-founder of Shout Your Abortion, which is a pro-abortion advocacy group. And this is what she says. She says, I've seen all these signs that are like, you know, no uterus, no opinion. I think that's a reductive gendered framing that makes it seem like we're the only ones allowed to talk about it. Anyone who cares about economic justice, racial justice, human rights, abortion access is your issue. See, abortion isn't a gender issue. It's a human rights issue that has considerations for both the mom, the dad, and the child involved. And the validity of any argument isn't based on the gender of the speaker, but on what is being said. Being a woman who has had four children doesn't make my opinion on this issue any more right than a woman who hasn't had children or any more right than a man. What it does do is it gives me a whole lot more empathy for a woman who is experiencing an unexpected pregnancy knowing full well the changes that her body's gonna go through both during and after pregnancy. But we need to be careful that we're addressing the argument that is being stated and not judging the worthiness of the person who is stating it. Mm. 
I also can you just unpack that for a second? I think that's so good, but just what do you mean by that? I mean that just depending where we are in our life doesn't make us more right than one another. There is a truth um, that we know from God. There is biblical truth, and we don't get to say someone's more right than someone else just because of their life experiences. Thank you. That's that. Thanks. Thanks. Yep. I also just find it really interesting that if men don't get to have an opinion on this issue, then Roe versus Wade should be overturned immediately because it was decided by nine men. <laughs> so. <laughs> that's that's uh, it's pretty valid, so. But, Jimmy, I know when we talked at my dining room table this week, you read this question completely differently than I did. I did. I, I read this, you know, you're a man, you don't have a say in this. Uh, very different because I think I find myself in the position often where I walk with different men in our church and in our community who have been in situations where a girlfriend or a partner gets unexpectedly pregnant and they're processing should they get an abortion, should they not, and th the man as a follower of Jesus, finds himself in a unique place while his friends are saying, boy, if she goes through with this, you're dodging a bullet, is the phrase that they hear a lot. For them, they're usually in a situation where they're going, but, but I believe that part of me is built in, like, it's in my image. You know, they're going back to Genesis 5 without knowing that. They're feeling that. And um, they know it's human DNA that's there. And so I, when I read that, you don't get a choice. My heart kind of breaks a little bit as a man because walking with men who have wanted to be dads, wanted to be fathers, and really do it well. Um, you know, it, it kind of reinforces a narrative, like you don't get a say as a dad, you know, you, you just keep going there, and it's stolen a part of them a little bit. And that's hard, and, and, I, and, and it's, it's not easy. But I also remind most of these men, when I walk with them, like, listen, you're a man, and you have no idea what it's like to carry a child. You're absolutely right. I have no frame of reference. I only know watching my wife go through three pregnancies and stopping and thanking God my body doesn't go through that. Um, I just tried to gain the weight to match her, right? But, um, you know, I, I remind a lot of these men, like, if, if you weren't in the city, we said this is going to be PG-13, right? If you didn't have sex before you were married, outside of God's simple sexual ethic that he has set up, right? One man, one woman in the context of marriage. Um, if, if you were in God's plan, this conversation isn't happening or happening nearly as frequently, right? It, it's such a different conversation, but because you chose to act outside of God's boundaries, whether you love them or not, you put yourself and you put this woman in a situation she shouldn't have been in. This was your choice too. Like you don't get to, to, to shame them for that. Like you're part of this. And I do look at those rules that God has set up. They are rules. They're boundaries. They're guidelines. He's not a killjoy, and he's given us, you know, sex as a beautiful gift in the context of marriage to make, you know, make other humans. But these guidelines, these covenants and boundaries are really meant to protect us from a lot of unwarranted pain. But we don't really want to do that. And, and, and that leads to, a, like, a, you know, unwarranted pain and a God of pain. It leads to one of the harder questions, I think, that we received. And, Will, that's the question I'm going to pose to you with this one. And, and I don't envy this question, but what about a God who kills? And that's in reference to all those Old Testament stories we're reading. What about a God who kills then? 
Yeah, so this gives me kind of the opportunity to tell you, like, as a pastor, um, I don't just read the Bible and go like, oh, okay, everything's true, and I walk away. Um, I wrestle through stuff. There's sometimes I read and I, I flinch at, and that doesn't mean I don't accept it, but I wrestle through it and try to understand it, right? So this is kind of one of those things. In Scripture, um, for years now, some of you may have had, been in a conversation with me, I've always wrestled with what happened to the Canaanites in the Old Testament. So if you look in Deuteronomy 20, God calls for the complete annihilation of the Canaanites. So killing every man, woman, child, and livestock. So he wants the complete wiping out of the Canaanites. And I remember reading that, and still even when I read it, when we, when we soaped it or going, gone through things, I always have myself going, wait, what? Like, how could God just call for the annihilation of an entire society and people? Like, it just, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, and how can abortion be wrong, yet God tells the Israelites, hey, kill this whole entire nation. But I remember that this is the same God who called for the flood and wiped out the entire planet. And we didn't really flinch at that. We're kind of like, okay, that, that kind of makes sense. Um, I don't know how that makes sense, but some people, they, they, we, we painted on nursery walls. So um, Judah does not have Noah's Ark yeah, on the nursery wall. I just want to see the dead bodies at the bottom <laughs> yeah, of that mural, like, oh, yeah, we, floating we around. Like, it's like a little cute story about an ark, but no, God wipes out the entire planet. So how, how does that work? And I've prayed about this a lot, and I thought about, I thought about it. I saw it, scripture in its totality, and I realized Isaiah says it best in Isaiah 55. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. So God is the one who has the authority. And some of the things that he does, I'll be the first to admit, I don't always understand. But then when you look to kind of try and figure out well, what's going on with the Canaanites, they're not an innocent people by any means, right? When you study the Canaanite nation, they were terrible. They were not innocent people by any means. They were a wicked nation that was sacrificing children to their god Molech, doing evil that we could barely imagine today. And God told them, he gave them the warning, I'm going to punish you if you guys don't knock it off. So to stop the injustice, he called for them to be wiped out. He and his knowledge knew that they were a wicked, evil nation bent on destruction with evil practices, so he decided they had to be stopped. But I think important we have to remember is, in dire concepts, God always offers mercy. And to those who would give up their wicked ways and turn to him would be saved. God is the author of life. He has numbered our days. So what about a God who kills? Well, he's the authority. He's the author of life, and his ways are higher. He was wiping out an evil nation that wanted to continue down this evil path of rejecting his ways. But speaking of the Old Testament, we got a few questions and instances in the Old Testament about miscarriages and, and some people claiming that the, yeah, these passages uh, you know, are pointing to abortion's okay. Um, so I feel like we need to talk about it. So here's the question, and then Becky will start with you. There are real instances of miscarriage and abortion in the Bible. We, often, we don't often discuss them. How can we have a realistic Bible-based discussion without discussing these specific instances? All right, so several people sent in questions of this type, and um, they were primarily referencing Numbers 5 and Exodus 21. Um, both books we have soaped together as a church here at Crossbridge, and Numbers we did just earlier this year. And I'm going to tackle Numbers 5, um, which I 
find as an interesting passage. And I remember we had a really good discussion about this in our Friday morning women's small group when we were soaping. So plug for small group. If you're not in one, um, get in one because so we it's do also talk saying about stuff. It's also saying that we did not talk about it. Clearly you talked about it in your small group. We did. And it was interesting. And everybody was looking up different commentaries and we were going back and forth. Um, and the passage in um, question is Numbers 5. It's 11 through 31. I'm not going to read the whole thing this morning because we just don't have that time. So I'm going to summarize it. But please, go back and read it on your own later today um, and look at the situation yourself. So Numbers 5 is addressing a situation in which a husband is jealous and he suspects that his wife has had adultery, has committed adultery. But there's no proof, because we know from other places in the Bible that if there was proof, if she had been caught in the act, she would have been stoned, as would have the man. He would have been stoned as well. So in this instance, there's just a suspicion of adultery. The man is jealous. And there's no confirmation that she has cheated, and there is no confirmation in this text that she is pregnant. And so while it looks like a really bad situation for the woman, it's actually God putting in some protections to keep a woman from undue harm. Um, typically, a man could just divorce his wife or do you know, almost anything to her. But God is saying here that if the husband's just jealous and doesn't have any proof, a priest has to come in and actually mediate the situation. Um, we We're not doing that now. No. We talked about, it was kind of like um, protection against domestic violence is what our small group talked about. And so um, in there, the man would have to provide different grain offerings, and then the woman would be required to drink a cup of bitter water. And this, is, this bitter water is its ritual water that was used in the temple. They mixed some dirt from the temple floor into it, and then the priest wrote a curse on a piece of leather and then he dipped the leather in the water until the ink ran off. I know this is really strange. It sounds so weird. And so, but that's what it is. So basically it's a cup of dirty, inky water is what this woman's going to have to drink. And the, water, the woman agrees that um, she will drink it and says that if she is guilty, a curse will come upon her. And so um, if she's innocent though, nothing happens. So this type of situation is called a trial by ordeal. Um, and typically in a trial by ordeal, God would have to miraculously save the innocent person. Think of like the Salem witch trials or something. If she was innocent or if that person was innocent, God would save them from being burned. In this case, nothing happens to the innocent woman. It's only if she's guilty that there is a curse that is brought upon her and um, it would then make her barren. So remember, there's no mention of the woman actually being pregnant in this verse, and there are a few translations, just a couple, but overwhelmingly, the words that are used in Numbers 5 um, are rendered causing her womb to shrivel. Um, and so it's not a recipe, it's not like this dirty water is God's recipe for you know an abortion. It's completely harmless if the woman is in innocent. Um, and the woman is actually protected by the process rather than threatened it by it. And so trying to point this out as um, you know, an abortion is, is widely considered to be a misreading or misinterpretation of the scripture. Yeah, and, and I will say for our, 
Wednesday night men's small group that I get to, the privilege of being part of, when we hit this passage, all our guys were like, what in the world? We, what, like, how does a woman read this? And so when we began to talk about that, your group's discussion greatly impacted the men of our group going, oh, that's how they see this. And it was great. So we did not talk about this in youth group. You didn't hit that in youth group? It seemed confusing. I was like, Move on. <laughs> yeah, let's not do this. It is really weird, but... Um, so the other one, and, and I won't read the passage because, again, just for time purposes, we have it ready, but I'm going to just skip through the passage of it. But this passage that's brought up from Exodus 21, which, again, we had soaked together. So when people say, we don't talk about it, yes, we do. Get in a small group, we talk about it. Um, we do. But this one is really um, a passage that's used about two guys get into a fight and um, a woman who is pregnant gets struck and the, then what do you do in that situation? And so if you go throughout this passage in Exodus 21, um, what you find is that this entire chapter is built around two types of, of laws. There's um, voluntary, like I made a mistake, an accidental death versus murder, and both are handled very, very differently. And so when you go through this passage in Exodus 21, almost every Jewish theologian would read it, you know, read it the same, is that it says that if this woman who is struck in the midst of these two dudes fighting gives birth prematurely, is the, the, the way the Hebrew is there. So there's this understanding that she's still giving birth. Now, if she still gives birth and that baby begins to survive, there's a penalty, a, a, uh, some money that would be paid for the loss, right? Um, now, some people use this passage to say, well, the baby's miscarried, but that's not the way the Hebrew is. Um, and so, the, you know, if the baby comes out, the Hebrew there is always used for live births. If the, ch the word child in the Hebrew, it's always depicting living children because we have words that are not depicted that way. Um, but if a child makes it through this premature birth, and now we have the science to help, you know, keep those kids alive longer, but there it wasn't a guarantee, right? What do you do in that case? Then what you see after this trauma in, you know, verses 22 to 25, they make a lot more sense where it's like, oh, what happens? Well, that's where you look at the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and this, and, and there's an accidental, it's not like someone struck that woman intentionally trying to eliminate the, the life of this child. And so the context of the whole chapter here it really does make a difference. It's, there's a huge difference between an accidental you know, miscarriage or death in that case versus an intentional elimination. And the other one that was brought up occasionally was uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where in that psalm sung by the birds where there's a time to kill. Um, you it's know, a good song though. It is a good song. Um, the, the problem with that one is we're talking about Jewish wisdom literature, and so if you've read Ecclesiastes, you're like, uh, this seems so depressing. Um, but the, really, it's, it's a season, there's, it's, life is hevel, you know, the Hebrew word, it's smoke. You can't get your hands on it, it's unpredictable. And that, that phrase, there's a time to kill, is found in a song that this writer or teacher is singing. And it's like if you go a little deeper into it, it's like in verse 8, there's a time to love and a time to hate. God's not saying, oh, you know what? There is a season for hate. And, you know, we're all looking at it going, I can't wait for that season because everyone around me is driving me nuts. I can't wait to hate. You know, we just take Scripture out of context, I think, sometimes to fit what we want. But that, I, those are a lot of Old Testament things. But the New Testament does also talk about you know, pregnancies and, and all this. So, well, let me pass it to you. No, yeah, we have to, we have to look at, when we're looking at Scripture, we got to look at the whole thing, right? You never just want to pick and choose verses, but you want to look at the theme of the totality of Scripture, so from cover to cover. And you're right, there is 
birth and pregnancy in the New Testament. It's actually a pretty big deal that there's birth and pregnancy in the New Testament because Jesus was born, right? Amen? Um, Amen. Right. Yeah, so I God, affirm that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. God cares about all of this, and we, if we want to see how Jesus fits into it, we have to bring up the humanity of Jesus because Jesus was born and Jesus' life started in the womb. But something I find, find super cool about the, the, the kind of whole story of Jesus as Messiah and him being born of a virgin and all the things that went along with that was the first acknowledgments, right? This is really cool. The first acknowledgments as Jesus as Messiah was an unborn baby in another womb. So if you read Luke chapter 1, I'm just going to sum it up real quick. But Mary, you know, she, she's told by God that she's going to have a baby born of the Holy Spirit. And then when she finally she accepts, God's, she accepts God's will and she hurries to meet her relative, Elizabeth, who's also pregnant. She's actually six months pregnant. Um, and she, she runs in to, to meet her relative, Elizabeth. And as she greets her, Elizabeth says, my child leapt within me at your greeting, and then Elizabeth was instantly filled with the Holy Spirit. And it actually says this in verse 42. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. So John the Baptist, this is the baby in the womb they're referring to. He hasn't baptized anybody yet. He hasn't baptized. So just okay. John just the unborn. John, <laughs> John was the first one to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. And not only that, but in the womb, his mother was filled with the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful moment you see where an infant in one womb acknowledges the life of another womb. Mm -hmm. um, so even within the womb, God was working, filling John with the Holy Spirit, meaning God was with and knew John and could use John for his glory even before John was born. Amen. But that brings us to all the what about questions. Yeah, this one... Uh this one was hard. Um, this is the question. It's just, where in the scripture would there be any acceptable reason or allowance for one to have an abortion? And th this is the whatabouts question, right? What about rape? What about incest? What about the mother's life? All those things. And first off, I, I just want to point out that the word scripture is in quotations here. And I, I, I know this. It's not the person's intention who wrote this. Uh, but at first, when I read this, it felt like a jab to me personally because I'm not sure if we're viewing Scripture the same way. Um, I don't put Scriptures in quotes. I try to capitalize it because it's authoritative in my life. And so I would say that if someone were to ask me this and they're trying to ask me to prove a point on Scripture and they don't believe Scripture, this is a pointless conversation because it's just not going to make any sense. Do you know what I mean? It just is um, – they're not going to believe that, so I don't – why start there? But uh, this question will frustrate a lot of people because we don't want to have a definitive answer for this, but I, I feel like I, I have a definitive answer. And I would say, you know, we need to be careful when it comes to this, the definition of abortion that you used, right? Where we're not talking about ectopic pregnancies, you know, these, uh, you know, just situations where they are truly medical procedures. But when it comes to conversations about rape and incest I, and, and those unf oh man, horrific situations that anyone would be in, they're horrific, they're sinful, they're evil. As I look through the totality of scripture, I cannot find any acceptable reason or allowance for someone to willfully terminate a life 
that is in, uh, of an image bearer of God. I, I just, I, I would love to find that for an excuse for somebody. Does that make anything that, like, so you're saying absolutely not? I, I am saying that. That's exactly what I'm saying. There is no exceptions to this. There's just a lot of responsibility that we. But that doesn't make it any easier. No, right? it makes we're it harder. About traumatic, hard things. We're not saying this is easy by any means. So don't don't think we're just talking about this very quickly. We're talking about quickly. Yes, for time. But this is a very tragic occurrence. Any of these situations, and, and even the topic of if someone's going to have an abortion is a very hard thing. We're not speaking light of that. Just no, make sure you put that in there. But I think God. I mean, one of the things that I love about our God is that. He hates the evil that happens to us, but God can redeem anything. Um, and it may take time and it may take a while, but he can redeem these evil situations. And I don't think perpetuating violence upon violence is, is what he would want us or calls us to do. Yeah, it, it's just hard. Um, it's just hard. But really, I know time is, man, it's fast. But the biggest question that we really have to deal with the hardest one for every single one of us that it really comes down to this question. If I'm going to say something so definitive like that, why would I say it? It's because the question that underlies every one of these is, so when does life begin? When does life begin? And so... so yeah, I kind of want to talk about it from the, the biblical standpoint, and then we'll move on to the kind of the science of it. So this is the first time like I've ever so much, did so much research on science. Like, So this has been an interesting sermon. But um, there's a few ways we have to approach this. And obviously, as followers of Jesus, we do come with a biblical perspective. Uh, that doesn't mean science is out the window. Pastor Jimmy is going to cover that in a minute. But, um, Jimmy, you stated in the beginning of today that we believe Scripture is authoritative. Um, so throughout Scripture, throughout God's Word, you see that God, God is the author of life and has said that life has not started only from conception, but God even says maybe it's even before that, right? We know in Psalm 139, he says that he knits us together in our mother's wombs. Now, this is poetry. He's not literally knitting, because that'd be weird. Um, but it's poetry, but it's, it's pointing to something. It's a theme. And you have to look at the totality of Scripture. I'm going to say that probably like the rest of the time. Um, when you look at the whole book, you clearly see that life starts in the womb. From verses in Matthew and Luke to the Psalms to Jeremiah, who said God knew him before he was formed in his mother's womb. So we have to be careful not to just pick and choose verses to serve a point, but look at the whole entire book of the Bible. And when you see the whole book as it's in, in, in its entirety, you see a theme that life starts in the womb. Um, but do we just look at the Bible? The beauty is that science is also speaking to this very topic. And I'll throw it to you. Yeah, I love that. I love, um, you know, science seems to be at this point, as we learn more, not discrediting what God has said, but actually reinforcing what God already knew. It's showing us what God already knew. And uh, as someone who grew up in an evangelical church, uh, I am grateful for many things that I've been taught, and I've been taught that life begins at conception. Yes, so and, have I. Yep, that's, that's where um, I know that this concept and this idea for you and I has been this week, or the last two weeks, we've been talking a lot about this because uh, just some baggage that comes with it, and conception is a loaded word, at least the way that we've always used it. So I feel like it's important that we define it. Um, and, and the definition of this, according to you know, Webster, is simply the process of becoming pregnant involving fertilization or implantation or both. That feels pretty nebulous when you're like, it could be A, B, or A and B. Like, no, it can't. But, uh, you know, 
I'm not a woman, and, and I don't understand a lot of fertilization stuff. So, so I get to talk learning. about it. So, um, so fertilization and implantation, there is a difference. Um, I'll get sciencey on you for a second. Fertilization is when the sperm and the egg combine, and in science, um, they create what is termed a zygote. Implantation is when the zygote implants in the woman's uterus and becomes an embryo. And after lots of research and discussion, um, we would say that there is life at implantation. Um, we didn't choose the moment that an egg is fertilized because we realized that about the stats are about one-third to one-half of all fertilized eggs never fully implant. Um, and a pregnancy is actually only considered to be established after implantation is complete. Um, implantation is when the hormone that we have um, called HCG starts, and it's the way that a woman's body signifies that she is pregnant. It's the hormone um, that is tracked in the pregnancy test that we take. So it's in your pee. Yes, it is. Um, that's how, at least that's how we've tested. Didn't Th that work is the typical it. way you test. I, I don't <laughs> have that. I don't have that hormone. It didn't work. So yes, yeah, so that is the hormone that's tracked. It's also the hormone that's tracked if there's a potential miscarriage. If HCG starts decreasing, it's a sign that the woman is losing the pregnancy. And this distinction we feel is important because when we talk about in vitro fertilization and birth control, um, until a fertilized egg implants in the uterus, a woman's uterus, there is only the potential for life since a fertilized egg can't live without being implanted. Um, and the only place an egg can be implanted is in a woman's uterus. Yeah, and, and that was, it's very important, like coming to the, some of those conclusions, at least because we know that people, everybody has a different choice on birth control and, and what we do with that and how each couple um, chooses what to do, whether they're keeping sperm um, from even getting to the egg through using condoms or birth control to keep an egg from being released into the fallopian tubes. Like, I get it, and we would all establish that all life is valuable. And so when we're talking about where does life begin, we're simply saying because it's implanted. And at that point, science is showing again and again and again that there is life that is developing in this moment. And so um, we would say then all lives that uh, implant are important. And this breaks my heart in some ways because uh, we know like in countries like Norway, nine out of 10 um, individuals with special needs, specifically Down syndrome, are aborted. And, and, and it breaks my heart because I'm thinking they don't get night to shine. They don't get this. They're making decisions based on genetics that they're but this life is, is valid, this life is important, this life changes people, and it's not easy, but there's a lot that happens, and, and Will, I'm gonna pass it to you really quick, because we joked around at staff meeting while Sharon was pregnant about what fruit size your kid was at that time. No, yeah, we had a student every Sunday come up to us after service and be like, your baby is a watermelon, your baby is a papaya. I don't know what a papaya is, but. And <laughs> they're not watermelons till the end. Oh, well. <laughs> He was a watermelon at some point. <laughs> but it was cool. It was yeah. amazing to see uh, kind of how it all worked kind of firsthand, right? Between ultrasounds and heartbeat monitoring. It's, it's crazy. And I remember Sharon freaking out one of the, one of the ultrasound visits. They, they had this huge screen, and uh, Judah, who was in Sharon's womb, was, they, they did the x-ray thing. thing. Ultrasound. <laughs> ultrasound. And you saw his spine. And Sharon says on the table, I'm growing bones inside me? It was like a weird moment. Because we're like, whoa, there's like bones in you. It's weird. But then we remembered she also has bones. So <laughs> it wasn't as impressive at that point. 
Um, but in generalized terms, right, a lot of people would say that in the womb it's just a, a clump of cells, which technically doesn't really make that much sense because we're all a clump of cells. But um, what's actually going on during pregnancy? So if you look at the CDC, Planned Parenthood, take a health class in a school, you find something called a fetal development chart. And that's one of them right there. When you look at that, you kind of see the progression of what's going on, right? So we can learn by week six that the heart is already beating. And by week eight, it's audible. Between week six and eight, they have limbs forming, ears, a palate, inner teeth, eyes. Their brain is already beginning to form and develop more and more. And we can learn that, e that they, babies will actually in the womb recoil when pricked, that they can be, begin operating on them in utero. This is all happening before the end of the first trimester. It's easier for us to think that what's growing, growing in the womb is just an unliving group of cells, but science is showing us it's more than that. It's a living human with its own body, its own genetic code, with fingers, toes, a heart, a brain. The debate truly is not when does life begin. It's more kind of becoming when is life viable, right? This, there's this um, guy named Keith L. Moore, and he has this textbook that's used in schools today, The Developing Human. It's a science textbook on embryology. And it says, human development begins at fertilization. This high specialized cell marked the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. That's from a science book. Peter Singer, a Princeton professor who is an atheist, also says this in his book, Practical Ethics. Whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes in the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there is no doubt from the very first moments of its existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and eggs is a human being. The debate is not when life begins. Science has already discussed this and has discovered this. The real debate is viability, but this is not the same as life. So when you look at all of this, all of the science that is revealing more and more of what's happening in the womb, it continues to point that he or she growing in the womb is alive, and it's life. When does life begin? It begins at conception. Early on, we see signs of a heart, a brain, its DNA code, knowing its eye color, hair line, skin tone, et cetera. So to put it in simple terms, when having an abortion, you are taking a life. So by those standards and logic, yes, abortion is murder. But I want to say this very clearly, that everything is forgivable. Amen. It doesn't take away the seriousness of the issue. Jesus says if we hate someone, we have already murdered them in our hearts. So we're not throwing stones this morning, but we are speaking truth. We do have to be clear. When someone has an abortion, it is taking a life. This is not a political issue, yet somehow it's become one. So let's address some of those questions. Yeah, I... Uh Crossbridge gave us so many questions, and we don't have time to do this. I don't want to halfway do this because it feels like it's robbing you. So you know what? Would you guys be willing to do this next week? And we'll, do, we'll, we'll continue our questions because I don't want to just throw it and be like, yeah, here, let me just fire through some points for you because your questions deserve more than that. The conversation deserves more than that. And I believe that there's probably some things that have been stirred and frustrated for some of you or encouraged for some of you that you're like, yeah, but what about? And, and I want to, I think it's important for us to hear some of that this week, just to hear. But 
I think it is so valuable. So are you willing to do this again next week? Yeah, why not? All right, cool. I'll punt yeah. my next message out, and we'll get into John for two weeks. Um, cool. Uh, I, I, is that okay with you as a church, as a community? All right. I just don't want to do it halfway, but I want to respect them. Like, it's 1130. You should know that we have spent at least... Uh, almost 10 hours together this week going over all this stuff and still not finding resolve because it's complicated and there's a person behind every one of these questions. And so even when there's such clear statements like we believe that this is taking a life, that we believe there's no instances in scripture that give us an appropriate response that abortion would be the right answer, all of these come with people and stories behind it that we all have connections to, that this is not an impersonal, let's just say it and be done. And so as we close today, uh, I'm going to ask that Will would lead us in communion because what brings us together is stronger than what could pull us apart. And we believe in the redemptive cross of Jesus Christ that all things come together through him who is the author of all creation. And don't spray yourself when you're opening your communion as Will's kind of getting that ready. But I do want to say this as we prepare to take communion. If you find yourself today um, triggered in some way, shape, or form, I want you to know that there's a, a deep, deep love for every family in our community. And if we can be praying for you or you need prayer, there'll be a couple people across the hall ready to pray for you, men and women who just will hear your story and, and simply ask like Jesus did, how can I pray for you? And if you didn't get communion when you came in, Jeremy has it right over here. If you just raise your hand, he'll hook you up. And so um, we, we will be willing and ready to pray for you afterwards. There is no shame in your story. There's redemptive you know, th that's, the, that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the gospel. Nothing disqualifies us from receiving the love of God, but he still calls us to a greater sense of life. So let's do this next week instead of just shortcutting it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand for communion because you can hear me better if I'm standing. Um, I, I do want to talk about how the kind of the last point I said, and we we're talking about taking a life, but also talking about how everything is forgivable. Right, communion, when we take it, when we take the bread and we take the cup, it's, a symboli it's a symbolizing the gospel, right? That Jesus died for our sins, right? And he says when he's with his disciples, hey, this is my body broken for you. And then he gets, takes the cup and he says, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We're talking about, yes, we're talking about sin issues this morning and we're talking about all, all this stuff going on in the world and we're talking about ourselves, but I want you to know this morning very clearly that Jesus offers forgiveness for everyone. That's what he did when he took his life on the cross. This morning, that's what, that's what the cup and, and the bread is about. That no matter who you are, no matter what you've done or what you've been through, Jesus loves you. And he wants this relationship with you. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing you can do that can separate you from his love. So this morning, will you stand with me as we take the bread and remember that this symbolizes his body broken for you. Take and eat. And then we take the cup and we remember that this was his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. King Jesus, we love you. Right now, we thank you for your forgiveness. We remember that we love others because you first loved us.
that we all were dead in our sin, but yet you loved us so much that, Jesus, you willingly took the cross for the penalty of our sin so we can have this relationship with you. But you didn't stop there. You rose again to prove that. So this morning, Jesus, may we walk in your forgiveness. Bless the conversations that I'm sure are going to come from these conversations. We look forward to continuing the conversation next week. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Don't forget, if you need prayer, um, please go over to the second cafeteria for anything, whether it's about this issue, about this issue or anything at all. Um, just go ahead to the other cafeteria. Have a good week.